Thank you for joining us. You're listening to a message from Doxa Church's Identity Series. In this series, we're learning about our baptismal identity as family, servants, and missionaries. At Doxa, we believe we're called to love one another like family, serve one another as Christ did, and to bear witness to the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. For more resources, please visit doxa-church.com. Our scripture reading today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 13 to 21. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thanks, Penny. Good morning. Uh, my name is Justin. It's good to be here with you. I think, uh, I think it says something about us that in order to make passing the peace work, we have to make it competitive. <laughs> like, okay, who's going to win passing the peace this week? I was, so I was backstage. Who won? Raise your hand if you won. Like, yeah, I won. <laughs> nice work on winning passing the peace. Hey, uh, I mentioned this last week. I want to mention it again briefly. We start Sermon on the Mount next week. That's going to take us through the whole year. Very, very excited about this series. Uh, it's, it's going to be really good. And uh, I, I say that uh, not often, uh, that it's going to be really good. And so um, I recommend it. One of the things we're going to do is memorize the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, that sounds like a big project to some of you. Uh, and, uh, and it is, if you want to memorize the whole thing. And I would love for somebody to do that. Get up at the end. And deliver the whole Sermon on the Mount memorized, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That'd be great. Uh, but we're also going to do it kind of in chunks. So if you're interested in being a part of that, or you're interested in just knowing more about it, no commitment. Uh, I know how terrified you are of commitment. So this is just an interest. Uh, text, memorize, 
M-E-M-O-R-I-Z-E, memorized, to our text number 24587. If you text anything but memorize, the whole system breaks down. So just type memorize to 24587, and it just gets you in contact with me, and I'll be emailing you uh, about what, um, what's going on with that and how you can be a part of it. So we'll kind of memorize it together. So I am making zero commitment personally to memorize the whole thing, uh, but I am committed to talking to you guys about doing it. Okay? Uh, Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. We are in the final week of our identities series, something we're doing every year to kind of level set um, our self-understanding. Okay, so uh, the, the foundation of this, we've been going through it now for several weeks. You've been around DOXA. You've heard these four questions that we ask a lot. And so I'm going to have you do it this time, class. Okay, so what's question one? Say it louder. Fantastic. Second question. What has he done? Third question. Who, okay. And then, and then question four. Oh. All right. We've got a solid C on that. Um, who is God? What has God done? Who are we or who am I for the individualist? Uh, and then what do we do or what do I do? Right? So, God's character uh, defines God's action. God always acts out of his character. God's action makes us who we are, and then we act out of that identity, that character, okay? So uh, we've looked at it through all three uh, persons of the Trinity, talking about it in terms of our baptismal identity. So we're baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So God is Father. Uh, he made us his children, part of his family. Therefore, we have identity as family members, fam- and part of the family of God. Therefore, we live out that family identity by treating one another as brothers and sisters, right? So God the Son, Jesus, was our Savior King. He served us uh, on the cross, ultimately, but also in many other ways. So part of our identity, not only are we served, first of all, but we are made servants, and so we serve one another. This week, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, and we're baptized in the name of the Spirit, so the Spirit uh, is God, bears witness to uh, the truth about God, therefore, uh, we are sent as missionaries the way the Father and the Son sent the Spirit, so too, we are sent uh, to, to go on mission. So, our identity as missionary, our activity is mission, or, you know, we might say evangelism, or bearing witness, or sharing the gospel, whatever the case may be. Now, I want to, I want to open up my heart to you for a second and share with you one of my deep, deep phobias. One of my deep phobias is getting up here on a Sunday and talking about something like evangelism and having everyone in the room go, yeah, 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 I've heard this before. I mean, like there is nothing that you can say to me worse than like, oh yeah, I've heard something like that before. Like, duh, I desperately want to be unique and a a snowflake if I'm really, really honest. But more than that, I want to challenge the way you think about normal things. Okay, I want, you to, I want to force you to think about things differently. So as I'm, I'm looking at this uh, message and talking about, okay, how do, how do we talk about going on mission? And, and I know from experience that uh, being on mission or sharing the gospel is one of the, um, I, it seems to be one of the most difficult parts about being a Christian. Okay, or at least it's one of the least practiced parts of being a Christian. 
Okay, so I know this, um, I know this uh, from, from interacting with uh, Christians for the last 15 years as a pastor. I, I see this happen in our missional communities, that our missional communities begin... And they always start by, uh, by, you know, learning to be family. So kind of getting to know each other, developing those relationships. So they are inter- interacting like brothers and sisters. We grow into the ability to serve one another. Once we like each other, then we can serve each other. And so we begin to serve and sacrifice for one another. And then there just seems like there's this brick wall between the servant identity and leaning into the missionary identity. And, and my own missional community struggles with this uh, just as much that we kind of are like kind of scratching and clawing try to get over this wall to actually, as a community, uh, get on mission. And so I started to wonder, like, what is it actually that keeps us from sharing the gospel? What keeps us from living out that missionary identity? And, and so, you know, part of what we do here is try to root these ideas in identity, not activity, Right? And so it's not, we're not trying to say, hey, be a Christian and go do evangelism. We're saying part of your essential identity is you are missionaries, and so just live out of that identity. And that's true and really good. Problem is, it actually doesn't, it, it doesn't cause you to be more likely to get on mission. Simply changing the language doesn't make you guys be more likely to go on mission and share your faith. So I, I started to wrestle this week, like, okay, what, what is the stumbling block? Why don't we do it? How can we get to the heart of this issue so that we can then get on mission? Is it we don't know how? Is it we don't know, you know, we're afraid? Is it we don't know we're supposed to? I mean, everybody knows you're supposed to. It's not a question of like lack of knowledge. If you've been to church like one and a half times, you know you're supposed to be sharing your faith. So then what is it? Okay, what holds us back? So I, I want to start with this. You guys are already in 2 Corinthians 5. I want to start with uh, my own kind of layman's definition of evangelism. And it's, I, I hope, kind of a simplified vision for evangelism. Uh, it's also going to make up the structure of my sermon, uh, which I think is pretty fancy. Uh, but it's, um, it, this, is, this is what we're going to talk about evangelism. Evangelism is being a human in public and then explaining why. Okay? Evangelism is being a human in public and then explaining why. Here's what I mean. Number one, be a human. While you guys are in 2 Corinthians 5, I'm going to jump back to, first, uh, to uh, Genesis 1, very first chapter in the whole Bible. And it may feel like we do this a lot, but it's important. We root everything in Genesis 1. It's literally, I mean, literally the beginning of everything. Right, And so much of what we know about ourselves, what we were made for, our purpose, and therefore our kind of trajectory in life starts in Genesis 1 where we go, okay, what did God make us to be? And so he answers that question for us in verses 26 through 28. says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay? I want us to see two things here. One, we believe, Christians believe, that God made us, that our our essential selves, God's intention in creation was to make us bearing his image. 
that he stamped us with his image so that when people see us, that our words, our activity, our thoughts would actually reflect our creator. Okay, so in our, in our Genesis 1 selves, there was much about us. Now, I mean, to the degree that a finite human being can reflect an infinite God, I get that, there's limitations, but God put on us the ability to reflect him. Okay, so then we skip ahead three cha- two chapters to chapter three, and we see sin enter the world and kind of mar and distort the image of God on us. Now, we never stop essentially bearing the image of God. Sin doesn't have the power to take away God's image from us. Satan's not that powerful. God's image on us is indelible. Okay. But um, the way a, a, a mirror reflects the one in it, a broken mirror, so reflects brokenly. And so sin enters the world, breaks that image to a degree, fractures, distorts the image. And so we only reflect God in part, but we still retain that essential image-bearing-ness. That's a word. Point being, God made us to bear witness to him simply by being who we were created to be. It's not a secondary activity that is required to bear witness to who God is. It's not as if God goes, okay, you're a human. Now humans, I need you to do this other thing that's separate from who you are. Go do this evangelism thing. That's not how it works. That God created us with the essential capacity to reflect him, to bear witness to who God is because he put that in us. So, to the degree we are like our Genesis 1 selves, God's intention in creation, to the degree that we are our Genesis 1 human selves, we naturally bear witness to who God is by reflecting his image. Make sense? Okay, the second half of this is God gives humans a a job. He says you are to have dominion, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, to care for, cultivate, and create. That we are underneath God, kind of caretakers of God's creation. So we see in this very first chapter in the whole Bible that God says we will naturally reflect him, naturally bear witness to him insofar as we are like he made us to be. And second, that our responsibility is or our vocation is to care for, to love, to cultivate and create the rest of God's creation. Okay, so I, I want to I pause for just a second and address those of you who are in the room who are not Christian, because this is a really essential thing, because I know that for some of you who are not Christian, the idea of us doing evangelism or, or proselytizing, trying to convince you of Christianity, is, is at best kind of gross and at worst deeply offensive. And so I want to address this for a second. Because I I know that to some degree, you feel like it's arrogant for us to share the gospel, to evangelize and try to help you or make you or something feel the way about God we do or see the world that we see it. And so I want to say first, I am deeply sorry to whatever degree we have arrogantly tried to do evangelism. Because there ought to be, especially in the Christian faith, zero room for arrogance. 
The very foundation of our faith is that God, of his own will, by his own goodness, created us. That once we were given even a little bit of freedom, we rebelled against him and broke relationship with him. That we kind of ruined everything, and that it's only because of God's faithfulness and God's grace and God's unrelenting love for us, kind of crescendoed in the cross, where God himself died so that we might live and be the version he made us to be, and that we have hope that that might one day happen in the future. That's our whole story. There is no room in that story for arrogance, So what I want you to hear is first an apology whenever we have been arrogant about our story because there's no room for it. Second, I want you to see that the reason why we have this, this kind of evangelism mandate or this mission mandate, this thing we think is so important is because it literally talks about who you were made to be and what you were made to do. And it's honestly true whether you believe it or not. That we believe God has made us who we are and God has given us a vocation, a big V kind of purpose for living. And we want you to see that too. So our, our, our job is not to convince you of some ideology. Our job is not to change your mind to agree with our philosophy. Our job is not to reorient your, your character or your morals or your words or choices. It's not that. It's to introduce you to the God who made you and made you for something. And to see that we have been kind of brought under that story ourselves by the grace of God at every turn. So I, I, I hope if you're here and, and you're not a Christian, man, I am so thankful you're here. Very impressed that you would come and be here with us. I often say that anytime a non-Christian steps inside the walls of a church, I'm, I'm flabbergasted by it, okay? I don't attend atheist, whatever you guys do together. I'm not sure, actually. I should probably know that. Um, but I, I don't do that, okay? And so I'm super impressed that you would, okay? So I, I want you to hear our heart in that. But here's what I want the rest of us to see. To bear witness to the image of God is to care deeply and responsibly for the rest of God's creation, man, woman, and child, just as God does. That's our vocation, to to be God's representatives here on earth. So to care for, love, and have the responsibility for God's creation that he would have because he gave us his image. And insofar as we do that, we reflect him. So Paul speaks to this idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The vision for salvation... And, and then sanctification as a continuation of the, of the work on the cross in our lives is to be remade into the men and women that God created us to be. So sanctification is the rehumanizing of a person. It's, re, it's regenesis wanting us. I'm making up so many good words today. Right? So when God saves us by the power of the cross, we're new. 
Paul says we're, we are a new creation. This old self, this Genesis 3 product of us is dead and we are functionally new. Now the work of drawing nearer to God is the step-by-step work of drawing nearer to our Genesis 1 self. And so when I say evangelism is being human in public, it's being that version of ourselves growing by the work of the Holy Spirit in us to draw us back and remake us into the kinds of people God made us to be. This puts a burden of credibility on our character and interior life, right? So our first foot forward is our life, is our humanness, which has two sides to it, right? So one, it's the degree to which we reflect God and when we fail to reflect God as we inevitably do, it's walking in the gospel, which is essential that we remember forgiveness. Okay? So it puts a burden on our character because that's our first step of credibility to the world, We have to actually grow and pursue growth in our humanness in order to ever be able to do evangelism effectively. We have to to, to put a burden on that and put a priority on that so we can grow into that Genesis 1 self. So that's the self that the world encounters. Now, we have to do that in public. Um, Some years ago, um, I visited my sister in England, uh, and she was there for a couple years. We took a family trip. There were eight adults and I believe 12 kids. It was terrible. They were all under five, and it was just a mess. And we drove around all, all over England, Scotland, and, and other, other uh, places. And one of the things you notice uh, right away in England, uh, a number of things, but one of the things you notice really quickly is they drive on the wrong side of the road. And, and there's actually very few countries who still do. It's only like two or three countries who, who make this mistake. And, um, and, and so it, it's, it's a, I, I refused to drive there, I mean, on principle, right? Uh, but, but also because I was terrified. I mean, all the left-hand turns, which are so treacherous here, are like easy right-hand turns here, and then vice versa. What should be an easy ride is actually the most difficult thing you could ever do. Now, don't even get me started on roundabouts. Oh my gosh. I mean, they're hard enough here where we go, you know, counterclockwise as God intended, but when you start to go the opposite way, I mean, it's a genuine impossibility. I mean, English people are geniuses uh, to be able to navigate that. So what I was thinking about the whole time we were there, I mean, often as we were on these long drives, was what if I just like kind of in that kind of uh, uh, cliche, arrogant American just went, uh-uh, I ain't doing it. I ain't driving on the wrong side. I drive on the American side. <laughs> if, well, I'm, I'm American. You cannot take me. You, got, you cannot make me drive on the wrong side. I would drive on the American side and, and I just would drive on the right side. What would happen? I like to play out those scenarios in my head. What would happen if I just, just said, no, I'm not going to do it? What would happen? Collisions would happen. Pain and devastation would happen, right? This would happen over and, well, only a couple times because then I'd just be dead, right? So, I mean, it would be a short-lived experiment. But I was thinking about that, and I, I heard a pastor one time talk about how that is, the, that is a vision for discipleship. That we, as the people of God, would pull out into traffic and go on God's side, the right side, and, 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 and 
into oncoming traffic and the result of Christians being Christian in the world would be collisions. Now, those collisions in this context don't need to be angry collisions. They can be very loving collisions and creative collisions, but there ought to be collisions nonetheless. There, there, there is a way to do the Christian life that really prioritizes this first idea of being human in terms of really pursuing life with Christ, pursuing character and that kind of interior life, that love of God and neighbor. And there's a way where our metaphors begin to cross over that we keep the car in the garage, And we talk about what it would be like if I ever took it out. You better believe I would drive on the right side of the road. I mean, you don't even know me. I would, but, but I'm not, but I would. And there's a way to do the Christian life that is essentially keeping the car in the garage and just talking about what you would do if you drove in the real world and that you would definitely go against the grain. And there would definitely be collisions and everyone would definitely get saved but you're not going to. But that's not what we're called to, right? I mean, that's not like, that's not living out this missionary identity. That's not what Jesus tells us in the Great Commission where he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Go out of your garage into the world, but holding fast to this vision for human flourishing, this vision for what humans were made to be and driving against the tide of traffic, and allowing those collisions to happen. 2 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 3, Paul says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children, widen your hearts also. In other words, Paul says, endure anything, everything. There ought to be no obstacles that there should be no resistance to you pulling out into traffic and colliding with the world, knowing the truth about who God is and the goodness of his heart for humanity, that we would intentionally pull out into traffic, not to make collisions for collision's sake, but because we know that this is the trajectory to real life. And even if, if this, the world is going against us, nothing will deter us from our goal. Nothing will deter us from our vision for human flourishing, even if it is driving straight into the heart of oncoming traffic. Miroslav Volf is a, a Yale professor, writer, wrote a book called A Public Faith. And he says this, I think this is a brilliant way to encapsulate this idea. 
He says engagement. He's talking about missional engagement. Engagement is not a matter of either speaking or doing, not a matter of either offering a compelling intellectual vision or embodying a set of alternative practices, not a matter of of either merely making manifest the richness and depth of interior life or merely working to change the institutions of society, not a matter of either only displaying alternative politics as gathered in Eucharistic celebrations, or merely working for change as the dispersed people of God. It is all these things and more. The whole person in all aspects of her life is engaged in fostering human flourishing and serving the common good. It's everything. That there's no part of your life that ought not preach the gospel. And I'm telling you, the moment you pull out into traffic, everything will collide. Everything that is aligned with God's vision for humanity and our flourishing will collide every piece of it. And yet Christ says, go headlong into traffic and let those collisions happen. Um, this week, I was talking to Jeff about this message, and this is so near and dear to his heart that he said, you got to be practical, be really practical with them, give them really clear ideas, uh, and I, I want to do that. So he, he told me, I wrote it all down, he says, he says, ask them, do you have friends that are not Christians? Answer in your own head, give him a, in your own head, you, you may have heard, you just talked, okay, that was not in your head. Do you have friends that are not Christians? Good. Know them, get to know them, hear their story, ask them about themselves, love them, serve them, pray for them, pray specifically for an opportunity to preach the gospel. And if you, if you don't have Christian friends, get some. If you don't know how to get friends, that's something I can, I can handle in this situation. It's too hard. You get, you're on your own for getting friends. But if you, could, if you know somebody, if you've seen a non-Christian, you could invite them to a Super Bowl party, say next week. Not on any other weeks, but next week would be a good time to invite them to a Super Bowl party. Get to know one person's story at that Super Bowl party. Just offer to get them a drink. Just go, hey, can I get you a drink? Great. Go to the fridge. Open it. Pull out a drink. Walk it back. Give it to them. And then just stand there. See what happens. Wait for an opportunity. You know, Budweiser might be the king of beers, but do you know the king of kings? <laughs> Try it. See what happens. You won't have any more Christian fr- non-Christian friends after that, but... Or better yet, really love your neighbor and get him something better to drink than that. Just make a connection. Just make a connection. And then, when the collision happens, and it inevitably will, open your mouth. Explain why that collision just happened. As you pull out into traffic and someone hits you head on and they jump out of their car and go, what are you doing? Go, let me tell you why, actually. And I I, I scoff. I scoff. (sighs) When I hear people say they don't know how to do evangelism. I scoff like that because I know you know how to do evangelism. You are evangelists all the time. It's why I quit Facebook 
Because all Facebook is, is a constant barrage of evangelism about essential oils, about CrossFit, about cloth diapers, about immigration reform, about taxes, about keto or paleo or, or whatever it is. I mean, you know the old saying, how do you tell a vegan? You don't, they'll tell you, right? Like, <laughs> that's true for all the things. And so what I know is that you know how to share the gospel. You know how to take a thing that you believe in and think would make someone else's life better. You know how to tell them about it. You do it all the time. You know how to find opportunities to sneak in that really hard workout you just did at the box, right? Like you figure out ways, that's a CrossFit thing, like half of you know what that meant, but like... You, you figure out ways to fit that stuff in because you believe it'll actually make their lives better. And so when the opportunity comes, you open your mouth freely and share the gospel of whatever. And you go, yeah, but what if they push back? That doesn't seem to bother you in these other categories. There's no science behind most of this stuff and that doesn't stop you, right? So we know how to do this. Question is, do we actually think that this is good news? Because we are not timid about sharing the things that we think will make other people's lives better. The vision that Paul gives in 2 Corinthians 5 kind of culminates in verse 20. He says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Paul says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do you see the work that we get to do? To reunite estranged family members. To see a brother or sister who lives among us who doesn't know our father and is estranged from our good and gracious father. And we have been given the responsibility of going, remember dad, the one who made you and remakes you, the one who pursues you and knows you, the one who gave you your identity and your vocation, set everything in motion for you. I know you were made for him. Let me reunite you with him. I think sometimes we get hung up on our ability to like perfectly articulate the cross given to this certain situation. Let me just broaden your idea of evangelism in terms of content. The whole thing is good news. It's not just the cross. You don't have to get to Jesus on the cross in order for it to be officially evangelism. Creation is good news. That God made us on purpose and this is not all chaos, that's good news. And it forms so much of what we pursue in the world. Uh, Hear me on this. The fall is, in a sense, good news. Why? Because it means it's not just chaotic and random. It means that there's an actual origin, there's an actual plan, there's an actual reason for why things are so jacked up. 
It's not just a shot in the dark. Well, well, maybe if we educate better, maybe if we fund this, or maybe if we do. No, it's this. It's sin in the human heart. There is a real Satan who hates you and wants to destroy you. That's the real origin for all the brokenness in the world. So it's good news in the sense that we can identify the why. God's pursuit of Israel through the whole Testament is really good news because we are just as rebellious as they were and yet God continued to pursue over and over and never gave up. The cross is of course good news because it's where all of our sin was atoned for and paid for. But the resurrection is fantastic news because we now have the power by the spirit to walk in life. The the hope of restoration is obviously good news because it means that this is not always how it's going to be. The whole Bible is good news. The whole story is good news. And you can connect anything to good news. So don't get tied up that you got to find a way to get it to Jesus on the cross or else it doesn't count. Sharing the good news of hope you have in any part of our story is good news. It is evangelism. It is being on mission. It's reconnecting people to the God who has been pursuing throughout time and space. Amen? We see that? Leslie Newbegin, a famous missiologist, said this in his book, Gospel in a Pluralist Society. He says, there has been a long tradition which sees the mission of the church primarily as obedience to a command. It has been customary to speak of the missionary mandate. This way of putting the matter is certainly not without justification, yet it seems to me that it misses the point. It tends to make mission a burden rather than a joy, to make it part of the law rather than part of the gospel. If one looks at the New Testament evidence, one gets another impression. Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? We can. Often. And I, and I don't mean that in a, in a way that would bring shame or guilt or go, yeah, I'm, I'm terrible, I, I, I do this, I do this. No. But we do need to be reoriented back often, daily, to what is truly good news. Not the little G good newses that we share with each other all the time, about little things that help us a little bit in our lives, but the capital G, capital N, good news that saves us and reorients the whole world for us to be able to see everything through God's eyes. The truly good, good news. Paul says in verses 13 through 15, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's good news. You know what also is good news? Is that when we don't do that, when we disobey and we walk in cowardice, he died for that too. But there is, there is no point at which God goes, gosh, you failed me again. No, he goes, this is why I'm here. This is why you need me. This is why I'm with you. This is why I pursue you. This is why we have good news. Because even when we fail to give the good news, he died for that too. 
It never ends. The grace never ends. The good news never ends. Some of us are hounded by fear that we might say the wrong thing. We may misrepresent God and just kind of ruin it. And we are so afraid we got this person in front of us and we think, gosh, what if I say the wrong thing? And then they won't believe in all this bad idea of God. And it's almost like we think God's in heaven going, oh gosh, I hope they don't say the wrong thing. Because if they say that thing, I won't be able to save them. No, no one believes that. We don't believe that. Your words aren't that good or that bad, or that strong, or that useful. God saves people by the power of his Holy Spirit. Now, do we want to say the right thing? Sure. Should we probably pray that the Holy Spirit guides the words that we say before we say them? Absolutely, 100% of the time, before you ever say any word at all, actually. But especially in this moment, because we know it is the Spirit that has to animate their hearts to love God in the first place. There's literally nothing you can say to mess it up. God saves. He has just chosen to use us as his mouthpiece and conduit of his grace. The more you become who God made you to be, the more you'll do this naturally. You will be the humans God made you to be. One who knows and loves God and as a result knows and loves all of God's creation, every man, woman, and child. You will go out of your way to know and love people who don't know and love God so that you can be that agent of reconciliation who brings together estranged family. You will quickly and passionately open your mouth to explain the collisions that people experience with you because you have an ever-deepening conviction that the gospel is really what people need. The really real good news. That's my prayer for us, Doxa. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the beginning, the end, the middle, all of it. The story begins with you working in creation. The story climaxes with you sacrificially dying so that we might live. It is you that was raised from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death. It is you who will come again one day to make all things new again, to make all of this what you had in mind the whole time. It is your spirit that moves and testifies to our hearts and animates our affections and moves us and guides us and directs us, bears witness to our souls about the truth of what you've done, about the goodness of our Father. And so we thank you. Lord, may we simply be who you made us to be. May we be human in public around all the people you've put around us and then explain why. Talk about your goodness. Even if it's in half form sentences and, and a series of question marks that we know you move. You and your spirit are what actually change a man or a woman. And so we rely on you every step of the way. God, make us into people who truly live out that missionary identity. In Christ's name we pray, amen.